Welcome, welcome, welcome. What's going on? This is Bakari Sellers, and this is the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Thank you for joining me on my debut episode. This is such an amazing feeling. The Bakari Sellers Podcast is in partnership with The Ringer on the Spotify platform. Look, this is going to be such a dope experience and a dope platform. Thank you all for joining me. Today's show is special, man. I got Deshaun Watson, the quarterback, Pro Bowl starting quarterback from the Houston Texans. I have my good friend, Alan Kinvana. He's a reporter from Fox Sports joining us to talk about NASCAR and the ins and outs and everything that's going on in the world of racing. I'm just really, really happy to be here. But, you know, it's weird, though. You know, it's you start a new platform, you, you get a new job, and then you read about your boss and everybody else in the New York Times. Uh, and so I, I figured I would start simply by saying I'm very, very grateful to Bill Simmons for having me on this platform. And I know I've read all the articles and I see everything people are saying on social media and let me just say that Bill and I have had some great conversations, and as we navigate these very, very difficult, challenging times and conversations about race, all I ask for people is to be honest. All I ask for people to be is, is, is forthright, and then we have to have some level of accountability. And so me and Bill have talked many times, and we acknowledge what the ringer has to do better. He's made promises what the ringer would do better, um, and I'm here to make sure that we're going to do everything we can to hold people accountable so that we move forward. And I'm happy to be here uh, because I know Bill wants to do better. Um, I'm happy to be here because I know Bill is going to give me this opportunity to lift up my voice and lift up our voices and speak truth to power. So I wanted to get that off my chest first. Um, welcome to the Bukhari Sellers Podcast here in partnership with The Ringer. Uh, we're going to have a lot of fun. Um, today is an amazing day, an amazing day to call the Kentucky Attorney General and remind them that Breonna Taylor's killers are still walking free on the street. They need to be arrested. So I don't care what you're doing outside of listening to this podcast. Today is a great day to stop and call the Attorney General's office and remind them that Breonna Taylor's killers are still walking free. Um, and then wear your mask. And I, I hear I have this clip from Sean Hannity on May 20th talking about Florida got it right and Texas got it right. And they did not. As we see, the spikes are popping up all over the place. Here's Sean Hannity talking about it right here. We know how to do this. We know how to do it safely. Americans are screaming to get their freedom and their country back. And they're even willing to wear masks in the appropriate situations. Florida got it right. Texas got it right. And guess what? Now it's time for all the states to follow their lead. And by the way, we can learn from some states that were successful. More importantly, we need to learn from the abject failures. Sean Hannity was wrong as two left feet. And as a father of a beautiful baby girl, Sadie, who is immunosuppressed, please wear your damn mask, folks. This is simple stuff that we're asking you to do. I just can't believe that the things this simple, we're having trouble. It doesn't mean that you're any less of a man or woman because you wear a mask. It, it just means that you're not an unempathetic prick, really. Um, so please wear your mask. I implore you all to do something very simple and just wear your mask. This has been a crazy week because uh, we have all these polls coming out showing that uh, Joe Biden is up in all of these polls. I have to remind you all that polls don't vote. But we've been retweeting and talking about polls on the show. We're going to have pollsters come on and do all of those things and talk to us about the ins and outs of all the politics. But let me remind y'all, polls don't vote. Make sure you go out and vote. It's crazy how far we've come in five years. Uh, just five years ago, I recall around this same time, I was at the funeral for my good friend Clemente Pinckney. And 
uh, then President Barack Obama gave the eulogy. And we remember this moment when the country felt like we were coming together. And although it was off key, uh, the president of the United States sang Amazing Grace. And I was next to Sonny Hostin, um, who also will be a guest on this show in the very near future. And I just cried. Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. So, yes, we got a lot of work to do, ladies and gentlemen. So I implore you guys to make sure that you're registering to vote, make sure you're active, make sure you're participating in your local elections, make sure you're registering people to vote. Um, also, I, I'm thinking of today, Tamir Rice, who would have been 18 years old. As you can see, there's a wide range of emotions that we go through on the Bakari Sellers podcast, but we promise to give you nothing but the truth. I'm going to start today's show by introducing one of my homeboys, um, Deshaun Watson, who is a prolific athlete, a great quarterback at 24 years old, already has a book coming out called Pass It On. It comes out in September. He's a dope individual, and I want to welcome uh, Deshaun to the Bakari Sellers Podcast. Welcome to the Bakari Sellers Podcast. This is the first debut show, and Deshaun, I never thought I would start my um, debut show by apologizing. I got to apologize to you. Why is that? For three years, I just talked cash money shit about you at Clemson, man, and y'all just, I'm, you know, I'm a big game cop. Oh, uh, that makes sense, Dan. I, I <laughs> <laughs> Man, and y'all, you you dog walked us three times. Talk to me real quick, though, because I remember the best game I've ever seen you play was 2014, and you beat us with a torn ACL. You remember that game? Yeah, I do. I do. How did you end up playing in that game? You you literally tore your ACL, set out, and came back and beat us. Yeah, man. It was just literally, I, I kind of go back. It was Georgia Tech. I kind of, you know, tweaked my ankle a little I mean, my knee a little bit, um, and they told me I, I tore it. So those two weeks, man, I was like, man, I can't play against South Carolina. Like, I, I promise Coach Sweeney, like, as long as I'm here, I'm not losing to the Gamecocks. I Come on, change. man. <laughs> I, I just knew. It was it was nothing against, you know, the the quarterback, you know, Cole uh, or anything like that. But it was just like, man, I got to be out there. I know I had the the energy to, the, you know, rally the guys together. And so I just kind of, you know, told Coach Sweeney and the doctors, and we had a meeting. It's like, man, if you can go out there and make plays, Embrace you up and just protect yourself. You can play. So that whole week, I went with the twos. I went with the twos. They was watching me. I was running the ball. I was you know was juking, spinning, everything. So they were like that Saturday. I was like, all right, well you are gonna start, but we're not gonna say anything right in, right Man. until the start. So it was cool. Man, that game that game broke my heart because I want to start off because I you know I want to talk about your time at Clemson and talk to me about you being a transformational figure at Clemson because before you got there, Clemsoning was even a word, right? And it's no longer. I mean, you completely change the way that people acknowledge Clemson football. When you look back on your career, how does it feel to see Clemson now annually competing for the national championship based in part on what you were able to do for the program? That is dope. Because, you know, I committed to Clemson when I was like 15 years old. So, like, I was through the whole Clemson. I mean, when we lost to West Virginia by like, Man, West Virginia, West Virginia is still scoring <laughs> touchdowns on that team, man. That's what I'm saying. Everyone, you still want to go to Clemson? I'm like, yeah, man, I'm going to help change it. I can feel it. I can feel the energy that Coach Sweeney is building in the culture. So, you know, I stuck with it. And uh, for me to get, be able to go there and bring the people along with me, man, it was awesome. And 
uh, for me to, you know, those two years, two and a half years I was there to be able to change what, you know, the university is now, you know, it, it feels good to be a big part of it. Man, you you changed the whole program. I mean, y'all wanting to beat that team with uh, Melvin Ingram, Steph Gilmore, and Alshon and and what Clowney that? and them, but you y'all want to beat them, but you know whatever. I know Clowney told you that in the locker room, right? Yeah, we used to we used to always go back and forth. He, <laughs> he gave he gave me some respect, you know what I'm saying? He was just like, yeah, man, if you was on that team, you know when we was there, you know it would have been back and forth. You know he was still would have said they would have came out on top, but he said it would have been sure. a good game. Man, talk to me real quick because you were able to crack the code, and we want to talk about stuff going on right now, but. I was just so enamored coming from Gainesville. You lived, and I was reading your book, Pass It On. You got a new book coming out, man. Yeah, I do. When does it come out? Uh, September. Uh, I want to say the exact date is my birthday, September 14th. Uh, but, you know, still sometime in that, that September, either the week before or on my birthday. Man, I just had a book come out, man. It feels good. When you, when it, you're going to be nervous, but when it comes out, man, it's a special feeling. You got a chapter in there talking about where you come from. Never forget where you come from. And I don't think a lot of people know that in Gainesville, you grew up in, what was it, Harrison Square? It was government housing in Harrison Square? Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about how it feels to go from Harrison Square, never forgetting where you came from, to running down that hill at Clemson. I mean, it was crazy. It was like a, it was like a movie. Ever since I graduated from Gainesville and, and took that next step to go to a four-year college and play big national football, uh, I mean, that's what we used to always watch on the square. Uh, we used to always meet up at either my house or one of my friends' house or go to the barbershop, you know, catch a Saturday morning, you know, try to get a haircut, find out a haircut and catch the game on TV you know, <laughs> so with everybody in there talking. And hopefully that, you know, they put on a good game, you know, because it's all the old heads in there. But I mean, you used to always just think about, man, I'm going to play on that one day. I'm going to be on TV one day. I'm going to play for a national ch- championship one day. And for me to be able to do that and take that next step, man, it's, it was cool. And to see the whole neighborhood and see my whole city rally behind me and really take charge and, and really support me. It was awesome. And not only that, man, but now, how old are you now? 25? 24. 24. You got a whole, <laughs> you got a whole book coming out, man. How does that feel? I mean, you, you are, you know, when you think about athletes, people don't give them the respect that they, that they deserve. I mean, not only are you out here being an advocate, but you have a book. Are you trying to change the way that people look at black athletes, people look at athletes in general? Oh, for sure. Athletes in general, but especially, you know, especially with what's going on today, you know, the black athletes and, and really the black quarterbacks um, and being yeah. able to, you know, team up with my my guy Bernie and my guy David and Quincy Avery and um, my whole team and come together. Man, I, honestly, if I was back in the day when I was in middle school, high school, if you told me I was going to, you know, put out a book by the age <laughs> of 24, 25, I would have told you Nah, not a chance. I don't even like to read. I don't even like to read. I'm not even reading the school book, so I'm not man, even. Man, look, I, I want I want everybody to know, man. I picked this thing up, and you talked about it like a movie. I mean, this is like this is better than Blindside. I thought that was anyway trash, but this is a this is a legit book. And as somebody who wrote a book that has some success, we won the New York Times bestsellers list three times. And I'm from a small city called Denmark, where we got three stoplights and a blinking light. Much props to you, man. I know how hard it is. And just feeling that Gainesville love. And I didn't even know you grew up in a place like Harrison Square. So learning so much about you. You know, I never liked you while you were at Clemson. But I love <laughs> you now, my brother. Talk, hey, before we get into what's going on right now, because, uh, you know, this is it's a cool, dope platform we got. You did something in college football that people, people rave about but weren't able to do. Like, in your football mind, talk to me about how you were able to crack Nick Saban's defenses. Going back and you think about that. You, you put up over 1,000 yards against Saban. 
and 75 points in two games against Alabama's defenses on the biggest stage. What was that feeling like? I mean, because Alabama, they were just dragging everybody. Right, right. I mean, it was just a different mindset. And it, and it started with me. I knew that I feared nothing. You know what I'm saying? And every time I step on the field, I felt you know like... Mean, you, don't, you don't fear Will Muschamp? Nah, not at <laughs> <laughs> man, that's Dabo Sweeney's little brother, man. I, I don't even feel right saying that, man. Right. But <laughs> no, but it was just really just bad. I, I knew every time I stepped on on the field versus whoever we played, I was going to be you know the best player on the field, and I want the ball in my hands. So I've always had that mentality coming from where I come from, and and that just kind of spread throughout the team. And we just came together, played as one, played with love and passion, and you know we we end up getting through. Them. Were they as tough as people said they were? Because you oh, yeah, shredded them. Yeah, they were They were good. Both times, they were good. You know, the first time we lost by 5, 45 to 40 in Arizona. But the second time, that defense, I mean, all those guys, if you look on the NFL roster, all those guys on the NFL defense in 2016 are starting on the NFL team right now. That's that's crazy. And y'all shredded them. Yeah, that was the NFL team we played it against. Talk to me about that last play, though. That was the Hunter play, right? Hunter Renfro when you rolled out. He yeah. was wide open, man. I could have I could have <laughs> caught that. We, yeah, we knew, we knew exactly because once they. What was it called? Tell me what what was it called? I can't remember the play. We we motioned the runner back in. It was like a roll, so I think we called it rope, like switch or something like that. I can't exactly remember the name, but we knew once we get inside the five, they were cover zero. Cover zero is all our blitz and everyone in man coverage, and so we knew that you know once we do that, if we do like a little switch route, you know they're gonna get lost. And Hunter Renfro was the best guy to do that because he was patient enough and he had, you know, secure hands that. Yeah, he wasn't dropping nothing. You know, flip it out there. Man, you know how hard it is to be a Carolina fan when Clemson winning national championships. Man, that's, I'm depressed thinking about it, man. Anyway, (laughs) we're going to move on. Hey, tell me about last year, y'all, you went to the Pro Bowl. Yes, sir. Last year, y'all, y'all won a playoff game. Y'all got, but then y'all got beat by the, uh, the Super Bowl champions. What was different about last year than your first couple of seasons, and how do you build on last year's success? Um, I feel like it was health. Um, it was health and being able to play 16 games and then some more. Because the NFL season is long. It's long. It's very tough. Um, it wears down on your body. And definitely, you know, having all the guys healthy and having all the guys fresh by the playoffs was very key. Uh, the first time we went to the playoffs, you know, we played the Colts. That was our like, third or fourth time playing them. Very disciplined team. We didn't have, you know, all the guys. I think D-Hop was hurt. I mean, everyone was hurt. And then last year, you know, we kind of rode, rode back against Buffalo. And then, uh, you know, we had a great lead in the first half versus the Chiefs. And then we just kind of went downhill from there. We just kind of, you know, hit the, you know, the break. Um, yeah. But um, I feel like just kind of, you know, bringing everyone together, you know, and it's really experience. We had a young team, but now we've got a veteran squad that played a lot of football. So I feel like this year we have an opportunity to even go further. Talk to me about this year, though. I mean, what are the conversations like in the league? You see the NBA is going through it right now with COVID. Are y'all talking about it yet? When are y'all going back to practice? I mean, what's going? What's that look like? Yeah, they say everything will start on time. End of July, training camp. Uh, I'm not sure exactly. Exactly. We haven't heard anything exactly how we're going to do it. If they're going to let people go home during training camp, we're going to be quarantined in a hotel um, and try to, you know, stay away from people. But that's kind of hard. You know, people got families and kids. I mean, so how do you weigh what's best for you and your family? I mean, you just go out there and play and let the chips fall where it may. Yeah, but I mean, it's risky because you don't know, you know, there's so many people you don't know who have it or, you know what I'm saying? It just kind of can spread through that way because, you know, football is a contact. You don't hit each other. I know. I do spit every can day. You, I'm saying. Can you imagine playing football with no fans, though? That'd be tough. 
I've never experienced it. <laughs> no. Even Pee Wee, you got, you know, you got the parents in the stands. You don't have nobody in the stands. That's crazy. If we can hear everything you calling out, everything you saying. Everything. That'll, it'll be it'll be wild. And that won't even be the hard part. The hard part is just really just the energy. Just like, damn, when we score, it's just like, it's quiet. All you hear is just, <laughs> you know, so. Yeah. So let's switch gears a little bit. Talk to me. Yeah, I saw you in this Black Lives Matter video. Thank you, by the way. Um, you and all the players speaking up. How did that video come together? And were you worried about any pushback from the league or from ownership of the, of the Texans or anything like that? Not at all. Uh, the pushback, we wasn't even worried about. It started with, uh, I want to say, Mike Thomas and a couple of older guys. And they contacted everyone in the video. And we got in like a group chat. And, you know, we came together. And uh, we kind of put it together very, very fast. Uh, because we all knew we were all on the same page. We all were, you know, on board. And uh, that's something that we want to, you know, speak out about um, with everything going about. We wasn't even worried about the NFL or what our organization had to say, because that's how we feel. And that's why, you know, we've been feeling that way for a long time. And this was a perfect opportunity for us to come out and say it. Man, I, I was so proud of y'all. And then you and D-Hop, I mean, you guys came together to talk about taking down the Calhoun and Ben Tillman statues from your days at Clemson. Right. I mean, and thank you for that. I mean, you it's like you're... I mean, do you recognize the power? Do do you guys do do quarterbacks and athletes? Do you all recognize the power you have now? Because you and D Hop did something that should have been done a long time ago from Clemson, and y'all made them do it. I honestly, I feel like this is the perfect twenty twenty with everything going on from the pandemic and the social justice and everything that's going on. This is the first time I feel like a lot of athletes feel like they have they can feel their power and their their voice. Yeah. Um, even me, I mean, even, you know, growing up through high school, through college, I had a lot of power, but I never really said too much because I didn't feel like, you know what I'm saying? I, I didn't feel like it was a time. I didn't feel like I had enough support behind me to be able to say what I wanted to say. And I was chasing, you know, my dream and, and trying to get out of poverty for my family and things like that. But now I feel like, you know, with everything going on, all that stuff doesn't even matter. Justice and, and being able to have you know, the, the the right way of living it and everyone being equal is most important than, you know, all the material stuff. Man, that's so profound, man. Let me ask you, a, I mean, you know, we talk about Black Lives Matter. You know, we talk about, I want to ask you a football question, just an honest football question. You look around the league, you got 32 quarterbacks and what, back up on each team, that's 64 quarterbacks. And maybe some some quarterbacks carry, some teams carry three quarterbacks. I don't know. Is Colin Kaepernick good enough to play in the NFL? Not not the political stuff, but is Colin Kaepernick a good enough player to play in the NFL? For sure. Yeah, no doubt. Because <laughs> I, 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 I was like, I, I'm up here talking about it on CNN, and people look at me like I'm crazy. But I, <laughs> you know, I see a Super Bowl, what, 2012? Yes. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> After that, that's when everything went down. And so he haven't been able to, you know, show what he got. But I'm pretty sure if he was still on the San Francisco team, he would have probably be playing in the playoffs every year. Yeah. I mean, I okay, I wanted to make sure I wasn't going crazy. So what's next for you on the social justice front? Have you thought about it? I know you got a book coming out. I mean, and you saw Pat Mahomes just joining forces with uh, LeBron talking about helping people register to vote. Is that is that one of your focuses? What's next for you on this front? Yeah, I feel like that's the next step is really taking action of voting, changing the inside. And for me, I'm still learning myself. Yeah. Uh, I'm still growing. I'm still trying to educate myself, and educate my family and people around me. So, you know, I feel like, you know, 
not actually being on that board with, you know, registered voting, but I'm supporting that group. I'm supporting, you know, everything, you know, me and DeAndre Hopkins, we talk a lot. We still want to, you know, continue to get together. I think he's in Houston. So, you know, whenever this COVID thing, you know, kind of settle down, yeah, especially yeah. Like we get together and, you know, do some things. Kenny Stills is my teammate and great friend. So I talked to him. I actually talked to Kaepernick two weeks ago um, about things he was doing. So me just kind of, you know, supporting everybody and really taking charge and, and being, you know, a voice that I can help spread the word. Definitely. And now you see college players speaking up. I mean, I was so proud of your boy Trevor Lawrence for speaking up and using his voice. I mean, and you you feel that change now because when you were in college and even before then, athletes didn't really speak up. But now you're starting to see athletes speaking up on the college level. Right, right. And which is good. And that's what goes back to what I was saying. Athletes feeling like they can they can say it, even at that level, they can speak up and, and hold their power and have a voice and say what they want to say and control what they can control. Let me ask you about black quarterbacks, because last year was a banner year for black quarterbacks. I didn't even realize this until I was preparing to talk to you. But Pat won the Super Bowl. Lamar won the MVP. You started the Pro Bowl. And Russ had a great season. Like, do you finally think that we can, like, put all that bullshit aside about the stereotypes that black quarterbacks have, that they don't have the chops intellectually to play the game? I mean, do you finally think we've turned that corner? Yeah, and I've been fighting that for the longest. I mean, even when I was coming out of college, you know, they were saying that, you know, all the things I did, you know, all the records I broke, things like that. And they were saying that I still wouldn't be able to transfer over to the NFL. And when I got to this organization, you know, my coaching staff already knew, like, I mean, this guy's already events, you know, and, and being around so many young, especially black, you know, quarterbacks that is coming out of college and high school. I mean, those guys are very, very smart. They're getting the proper training. Um, they're getting the, the proper education to be able to take that next step and be, you know, a professional. I saw that that reporter try you one time uh, in a in a post game interview about. Uh, I think we lost that game. That was against Carolina. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I mean, you you go through things like this, and then you have. Tell me about. I mean, when when you go through, so people don't really know. People listening to the show, they just think that you know you show up, you work out, and then somebody somebody calls you on your phone when you're in the house with your family, and that's how you get drafted. But you go through interviews with these teams, or at oh, yeah. least allegedly. Yeah, you go through interviews, you you meet with them at the pre-draft, you go to their cities and their facilities, they come work you out, wherever you are. I mean, they do everything. I mean, they really, you know, investing on you to be able to come change their franchise, especially as a quarterback. Well, thanks to you, I mean, and a lot of you guys, you, Russ, Pat, Lamar. I mean, it's just because, you know, you remember people were saying Lamar Jackson should have been a, a running back, a wide receiver. Yeah, a wide receiver, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, no, I, I knew he was going to be a quarterback. I mean, he now was, you, you know, you don't have to respond to this, but you do know you should have won that Heisman over Lamar, right? I should have won a bat to bat. Oh, so you agree with me? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Lamar had a hell of a year. You know, he had a hell of a year. But he but lost like four games, though. He lost the last in November. He lost a couple games. That's my dog, though. So he deserved it. The year before, man, I was the first player ever in FBS history to pass for over 4,000 yards and rush for 1,000 yards. Ever. Never been done. Johnny Mazzell, Cam Newton. I mean, you go all the way back. And, you know, I came in like third or second, at, you know, my sophomore year. Derrick Henry won that year. Derrick Henry won that year. But, you know, it is what it is. And uh, we just kind of go from there. <laughs> uh, I know we're about to get you out of here. Let me talk to you real quick about something that people on social media have been talking about. A lot of people are now saying that blue chip black athletes should consider playing at HBCUs. Did you ever consider playing at an HBCU as I'm rocking the Alabama A&M Bulldogs shirt today? 
Uh, honestly, no. Nah. I never thought about it. And I feel like, honestly, none of those schools came and talked to me. Uh, <laughs> they came and talked to the other guys. They would come by the, you know, the schools at, at high school and come out of class and, you know, they would talk to my teammates. And then they would say what's up to me, but they wouldn't like, you know, they wouldn't show any type of interest. So, of course, I was committed to Clemson and I wanted to play big time college football. Um, I what do these like, schools need to do, though? What, did, what would they need to do to recruit a player, a Deshaun Watson caliber player? I mean, honestly, they would have to show it would have to start with the the, the student, not, not the student body, but it would have to start with the, you know, the the facilities and things yeah, like yeah. that. But like, that's the biggest part. You know, no one wants to go to, you know, you're coming from a big time high school and your facility is better than your college facility. No one <laughs> wants to downgrade. You feel me? And it's nothing against that university. You know what I'm saying? But that's just how it goes, especially for, for football. Basketball yeah. is a different story. You know, basketball is a different story. That's what's up. That's what's up. So I know you got the, before I let you go, I know you got the Deshaun Watson Foundation. Tell me what's going on with that. Anything new going on with the Deshaun Watson Foundation? Yeah, yeah. We wanted to, especially, I mean, like I said, the COVID is, is really slowing everything down, but, you know, really. Coronavirus trying. won't let us be great, man. Yeah. But, you know, the foundation still is, is still going forward, still on track and, you know, making sure that we're getting, you know, the proper um, education out towards these, you know, private communities, uh, especially around in Houston and back in Gainesville. And then also, you know, building houses and, you know, making sure that these school systems are, you know, making sure that the young kids are having an opportunity to fulfill their futures. That's what's up, man. Your book is dope. I'm proud of you, man. All the things you're doing. You and D-Hop. I, I mean, I never thought I'd be sitting here talking about Clemson players like this, man. But I'm so, <laughs> like, I, I truly am so proud of you. That wouldn't Trevor Lawrence wouldn't be doing the things he's doing in terms of social justice if it wasn't for people like you. You know, you were really changing the whole paradigm. And so congratulations and props to that. And thank you and to your whole team for allowing you to come on the Bakari Sellers podcast for a few minutes and join us, man. Yes, sir. Thank you. That interview with Deshaun was like, it was crazy. I mean, I, I just, the maturity level of, of Deshaun Watson, and as somebody who's a big Gamecock fan, I can truly say that I am so proud of Deshaun. And I think people know when they come down south and know our sports that you don't get people giving praises across rivalry lines like that. But uh, Deshaun is so mature. And I can honestly say, man, is that if my little boy grows up to be, you know, the man that Deshaun Watson is, I'll be extremely proud. My next guest, though, is Alan Kavana, man. We've had a long week in NASCAR, and I'm grateful that Alan can come. He's somebody who knows the ins and outs of NASCAR. He is a Fox Sports reporter and just an amazing individual, great husband, um, I've known Alan for a very long period of time. Alan, what's going on, brother? Uh, things are going well. I really appreciate you having me on, and uh, it, it's been nice. Uh, I've got a big bump because of your influence on Twitter, <laughs> to say the least. Well, you know, it, it's the debut show, and I'm happy to be airing with a friend of mine, somebody I've known for a long period of time. But, you know, the, the wild part about this, Alan, is you're from Connecticut. And so how does someone from uh, Connecticut become a reporter in arguably the most quintessentially Southern sport there is. How did you get that start? Yeah, well, look, I mean, racing is all over the country. NASCAR itself, you know, the series is mostly Southern, but racing is everywhere around the world. And, no, 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 it's ours, Alan. It's a Southern <laughs> NASCAR. sport. <laughs> NASCAR is, yes. Stock car racing. But uh, my grandfather, my grandfather was a professional race car driver. He was a New England sprint car champion uh, in, in the 30s and 40s. He actually made one NASCAR start in Connecticut. And like many in racing, it's a family thing. So my dad did it, little 
cars called quarter midgets. And then I raced. I raced quarter midgets. No, no, no. A, you didn't. You did not race. I ra- I was a champion race car driver in 1997, New England champion in my age and weight class. No, we're going to. So, you know, for the show, I'm going to have Kaya. She's on here and people are going to hear her name a lot. And, and Jared, my EP, we're going to pull that. OK, we're going to pull the record. <laughs> it <doesn't and> we're going <laughs> to we're going to search for it and we're going to post it. So, I mean, you and I, we talk we talk all the time just off the record about life. We have beautiful wives and we're just trying to live up to being their husbands. You're an amazing guy and you you have an amazing job. Tell me about this moment that we're in, though, because I firmly believe that I did not have this on my 2020 bingo card that NASCAR was going to outperform the NFL in terms of social justice. I mean, NASCAR right now, I, f- I believe, is firmly behind just the WNBA and NBA in terms of just being on the right side of history, in my opinion. But how do we get to this moment? I don't know. Um, I mean, if you would, it's certainly the first time in in my life that that it's been so forward in terms of exactly what you said, where we are. If you think about just a few months ago, they had one of the NASCAR's biggest stars on record, uh, on tape saying the N-word, right? I mean, and think of where we've gone in just the last few weeks, not not just the last few years. He got fired on on his day off. I mean, on his day off. Imagine that. (laughs) Imagine that. And you, as you hear my Yorkie in the background, this is a great way to start the debut episode. I mean, this is this is what it is, though. This is this is working from home. Talk to me about the Confederate flag in NASCAR, because for a lot of us, you know, there have been a couple of truisms in NASCAR. One has been the prevalence of the Confederate flag. The other has been like the absence of black fans there. And now we're changing all of those things. We are. And um it's been a big change. It's been a surprising change to say the least. It's one that, you know, we, we should all say, and we can all say in hindsight should have been done a long time ago. Why did we wait until 2020? And look, someone with uh, my following and my voice, am I complicit in that? You know what I mean? Are we all complicit in that? Why did it happen now? Right. But I, I think with the world and environment that we're in, we are seeing a change in terms of the, that term, you know, silence is complicity, if you will, right? Yeah. If I'm I mean, saying King that correctly. It, I, King said that we will not remember the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. Yeah. And, you know, it may be shameful that it took everyone so long. I, I don't think it was uh, just... It wasn't out of malice, right? I mean, they have tried for years. There have been an anti-Confederate flag stand from NASCAR. From all, it's not like I walked by it every time I went and, and just said, "Eh, that you know, it needs to be there." Or you know, but I would say to myself, "I wish it wasn't there." Right? I, I you, I knew it was turning people and what, off. You just wrote an amazing piece, and tell me what I mean. Your piece was so heartfelt. We heard Marty McGee, but I, I mean, I, I don't, I don't know Marty, but I'm very close with you. And that's who I know you always to be. What what compelled you to just write that piece on your little notes and put it out there for the world to see, knowing who your followers are and and knowing what in what sports you cover? It was it was that that notion that being silent should no longer be an option. It never was an option. My wife had to teach me that. You know, you can't say it no longer is an option. It never was an option. But yeah. most of us were for some asinine fear of pissing off what, the core fan or what have you, right? Or just fearing the blowback. That shouldn't have been an option, but it was, and too many of us took it, myself included. But when the initial news of the noose happened, I just had to relay it to people that this is 
my workplace, right? These are my coworkers. I compare it to a, a office building. These drivers, these multimillionaires may be on a different floor, but we all work <laughs> in the same building. And if that happened at your work, imagine yes. that. Imagine walking in to seeing something like that in your place of business. And that was my way to at least relate it to people. Think about that. We all work in the same place. And this workplace was attacked with this symbol and people needed to know about it because I was mad and I was mad enough to finally say something. And that's the moment we are in. What about those who are cynical, who simply say that, you know, that this is, you know, NASCAR's fans are getting older, the times are changing. And so... Uh, they've been uh, trying to attract new fans for a long period of time. I don't necessarily agree with this, but and, but you hear that from some on the right and some from and, and a lot of my friends on the left saying that this is just a moment of cynicism and we're, they're trying to. I think the quote that I saw was people are. Oh, Jason Whitlock said it. People are trying to change to turn Bubba Wallace into uh, into Tiger Woods. Uh, NASCAR is trying to turn him into Tiger Woods. I mean, what do you do with the cynicism out there? Because what Bubba went through and how he's handled it with courage and the fact that, let me just say this, I think NASCAR handled it perfectly. If my employers saw what NASCAR saw, I would want them to handle it the same way. But what do you say to the cynics about this culture that we're in and how times are changing? Uh, I think it's easy for them because they want to stay maybe in, in their in their past ways. I think given the long record, again, NASCAR 70 seasons old and we're going through a lot of change in a few NASCAR months. 70 years old? Yeah, 1948. So There's a lot that happened in 1948, guys. We'll have to have a history lesson in 1948. To think, but, but just to think about that history and then to have not as much progressive movement as a lot of people would have liked to have seen in the last 70 years, to have so much in the, in the last few months, that will bring out some cynicism. But... Uh, I keep saying you have to back it up. Like you can't, what we saw on Monday with the drivers and everybody walking through, that can't Beautiful. be, that has to be the start. That can't be the finish, right? It, it always depends what happens next. But I mean, that'll turn off about, the cynics. Think about the car that Bubba's driving. Think about that moment that was had. I mean, that's why you're a part of NASCAR for moments like that. Cause you know, these guys, I mean, you know, the Denny's and the Tony's and <laughs> I mean, you know, my favorite driver of all time is junior, right? I, you know, he never quite got, I mean, he's a new Hall of Famer, right? Hall of Famer, absolutely. Hall, Hall of Famer will forever be a Hall of Famer. He actually won two races on Father's Day. You didn't think I knew that, but I know that because th that's my guy. And you you rock with, you know, some some legitimate drivers as well. But now is it's a new time. And I believe NASCAR is walking into this moment and they're outpacing other sports. Did you ever think we would be at this moment? Never. I mean, you just, again, 70 plus years of history. You didn't expect it to move this fast. Now we have seen a lot of change in the last year, few years in terms of leadership, but, um, so whose decision was it to ban the flags? Did it come from on high? Uh, yeah, I mean, it comes from the top of NASCAR. And Bubba Wallace was the first one to, I mean, again, recently, again, five years ago, NASCAR banned it from all its images, right? You, you weren't going to go in, nothing official, whether it be a commercial or an advertisement, nothing was ever going to have the Confederate flag. It was denounced. I mean, there was no acceptance. Because we they know what happened five years ago, we had the Charleston Massacre, and it came down in South Carolina. And so it became a repudiated symbol, of course, because... And I have to say this for some of my listeners, the Confederacy did not win the war, but I'm sorry, just go ahead. No, and again, yeah, five years, I mean, NASCAR, they, they offered a, a trade-in program. If you brought your Confederate flag, they'd give you an American flag. I don't think one person took them up on it, but these were at least the, the <laughs> outfacing at work, uh, efforts that they, they tried five years ago, right? 
Well, five years have gone by. Things have happened. Society has changed. Bubble went on CNN and said, let's get rid of it the next day. NASCAR comes out and says, what it's it, happening. Well, and it's happening now. It's not happening. We're not going to phase it out. It's happening now. Let me ask you a, my lone tough question for you during this time, because I, I still want to be invited over to the house. And <laughs> you and Diane still have to come over to the house. But what happened to the Drive for Diversity program to bring in it's more? It's still there. Is it working? That's my question. Like, is it, is it effective? Because, I mean, I you know, I, I get that it's there. But, like, what is it? Can we... Can we put some gas under it now? Is this the moment that, you know, we need to go from symbols to like putting a little gas under this program? That's where racing in general gets complicated because there are so many facets. There are so many ways to answer this. Uh, The real color racing cares about is green. That's like the real color that most people care about. (laughs) Racing is expensive. It's not black and white checkered. That's not what they care about. No. (laughs) To get into racing, it is expensive. No matter who you are, no matter your color or origin or race or ethnicity, what have you. And what I mean by this is it takes millions of dollars to race at the top levels of this sport. If you are a driver of any age, the way it works now, you have to get financial backing. You yourself generally now have to go find a company that will say, I will sponsor this. And then you go to a team and say, I have a sponsor backing me. That is tough for anybody of any background. And that is what keeps that it, those barriers will always be there, the financial aspect of it. Still, though, NASCAR has a diversity issue in terms of representation to the rest of the country. That is obvious. And it does have the Drive for Diversity program, which has been somewhat successful. Look, the higher you go, the more money you need. And again, no matter who you are, that money is tough to get, especially when you think of bigger economic issues. So Bubba Wallace is there. Daniel Suarez, Kyle Larson all came out of the Drive for Diversity program. Other drivers who haven't made it as far as up to cup, but there are lower series like the Truck Series and Xfinity Series. Uh, the efforts are there to get them in on the grassroots part of it, the the, the local short tracks around South what Carolina, about the pit, around the what South. About the, what about the pit and the, the crew and all of those things? Are we? That's bringing probably the people? most diverse aspect of NASCAR. Is if you go down a pit road, you will see, uh, you know, black faces, uh, brown faces, all sorts of. Yeah. You, you just see a more diverse crowd on pit road. Uh, you know, females, right? Females on pit road uh, that you didn't see 10 years ago. Uh, it is far more, that's probably the most diverse aspect of NASCAR. So it's working. I don't know if I'm the right one to answer that. Uh, how you, <laughs> w- 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 what's the right number, right? No, what's I mean, right I mean, I, but progress, but, but we're not on that. But I mean, if it's progress, progress absolutely. so the, the, my, uh, my show, we're not, we're not going to do the numbers. We're going to do <laughs> the progress, right? So if it, if we're making progress, we'll put a little gas under it and we'll continue to promote that aspect, because I know it was a program that that we've had for a, not a long time, but a period of time, and I'm glad to see that it's doing well. There are a lot of people who are joining who don't know who Bubba Wallace is. They just found out about Bubba Wallace like three weeks ago. You don't have to tell me how good of a driver Bubba is per se, but where does he fall in like the spectrum of of great drivers when you talk about the Denny's and when you talk about the Cup Series winners, and what does he have to do to get there? Uh, he needs opportunity in bigger and better equipment for better race teams. And that, unfortunately, comes 
with having million dollar sponsor backers, something Bubba Wallace has never had. You mentioned like Jimmy Johnson has always been associated with the Lowe's brand, right? You think of Jimmy Johnson, the Lowe's car. Lowe's has given him $20 million a year to make that car go really fast. And Jimmy Johnson, one of the greatest ever, you know, that's what you do with it, right? You were supposed to, when you have the best equipment, you go out there and you're the best driver, you go out there and you do great things. Denny Hamlin has always had FedEx backing him. Bubba Wallace has never had that one sponsorship. And so you mean Black Lives, Black Lives Matter is not paying a lot on the side of the car to, to make that car faster? I don't know if they paid anything, to be honest. You know what I mean? Uh, so, but, but in terms of skill, that, that I do a whole pod. It's very nerdy, but I do a whole podcast with uh, my buddy David Smith about this very thing, about taking equipment away and how can you judge the driver. Bubba Wallace is right there. He's only 26. Uh, drivers don't mature really until they're about 39 years old. So uh, Bubba Wallace, so, whoa, whoa, whoa. I would say- Back up, back up, back up, back up, back up. So, so the older you get, the better driver you are? Correct. A driver statistically peaks in terms of performance at age 39. That's insane. So it's like totally opposite of every other sport. I just blew your mind, man. This is See, this is why I have you on, Alan. This is why I you try. come on more often. This I is try. What, but, but, Diane, no, but, but, Diane does not have this wealth of knowledge. I just want you to know. Because she's <laughs> listening right now, and this is why she's not on the debut show. But here's how I can put it to you. The, the team he I races like how you for, sk- Bubba. You skipped, you skipped right over that, but go ahead. I appreciate it. The, the team that Bubba <laughs> races for, it doesn't have a lot of money. It doesn't have the best equipment. It doesn't have the best about? It has technology. A, it's, a petty, it's a petty team, though. It they means have, nothing. It means nothing. Huh? It doesn't mean anything. I need to start a GoFundMe for this guy? Yeah, you need to find him a multi-million dollar. You need to call up Coca-Cola and say, why don't you give us $20 million a year and see what we can go do with Hendrick Motorsports and Bubba? You know what I mean? Something like that. Uh, but but what, I'm, what I just wanted to get at is, so you can see it on, on the speed charts. He, a few weeks ago, I, I put this out there. He drives the 25th fastest car. There's 40 cars in the series. His car is the 25th fastest. So think about that. did he finish 11th? He finished 11th, right? Exactly. So what do you think the difference is? The driver. He had black, he, no, he had Black Lives Matter on the side of his that, car. And that the, didn't the make ancestors, it The ancestors maybe, pulled him across. Yes, that's what but happened. Give Bubba some credit, okay? <laughs> that's what I'm trying to say. If you're finishing 14th, wow. 11th, with the 25th fastest car, that's where the driver makes a difference. And that's how you can gauge Bubba. So, so when they do the preliminary races around the track. Now, I've been to Darlington a few times. Don't get me wrong. I, I've been to Darlington. I love Darlington. I sit in there and I eat my Bojangles in the trailer, <laughs> you know, put my, the last time I went to Darlington, I probably will tell you how long Tim Scott drove the pace car. So how do they determine how fast these cars are? What do you, uh, that's an odd question. So you, say, so you, I mean, now, now you're like, okay. So if you say it's the 25th fastest car, how do you know that? Yeah. The stopwatch, the stopwatch doesn't lie. When you do you stopwatch it? it? Do you, do you time it? You time it during its preliminary races or no, you don't time it on the, the track? Yeah, no, during the race. You, you, you can, overall for the season, you can measure how fast a car is throughout the race and, and through the, whatever, 11 races we've had, you can, you make the chart and you can see where the, the 43 stacks thing, up. The only thing I love more than NASCAR that I don't know anything about is K-pop. And I'm doing, <laughs> me, I'm doing. Me either, man. <laughs> So look, all right, before I let you go, because I know you got to get out of here, you're very busy and I'm gracious for you being a part of uh, this new, the Bakari Sellers podcast. Do not ask me why I named it after myself other than pure vanity and we had to get a name. I mean, I want the Alec Havana podcast. So so let's talk about this news briefly if we can. Mm -hmm. I firmly believe that NASCAR did everything they should have done. I thought NASCAR reacted in a way that is appropriate for the times. I thought that what Bubba Wallace saw, he didn't even see it. It was his team that saw it. Can you just walk us through 
what happened and the reaction from your journalistic perspective. And then I, I, you don't have to give an opinion on, on what was right and what was wrong unless you want to, but just walk us through exactly what happened. Well, okay. Uh, finding out exactly what happened is maybe one of the only criticisms of this whole um, situation because it happened on Sunday when it was discovered and it was until Wednesday or Thursday that we, Thursday that we you know heard and were able to ask questions and get full details. So on Sunday, one of Bubba Wallace's crew members in his garage stall, Bubba Wallace wasn't there. He's not allowed in the garage stall because of COVID-19, but he, they found uh, a noose hanging off the garage stall door. And look, given the height of where we were, where we are in the country, they've just banned the Confederate flag. This is Bubba, the only black driver's garage stall. Uh, that's going to open some eyes. And it did. Someone saw something, someone said something, and alerted NASCAR. NASCAR did its proper thing and alerted the authorities. And then, again, if there's going to be any criticism here, it was just odd that at 10, about 10.30 Sunday night, it was NASCAR that sent out a press release. Think about, you know, just general news stories, right? It's reporters who get a tip, then you ask for comment, and that's how generally these things come out. It, it was very unlike NASCAR to send this out, the, the, this big happening, to send it out to everybody and tell people that it happened and use the language, this heinous act of racism. That was the one criticism that NASCAR president Steve Phelps said if he had to do it over again, he probably should have used the word alleged because when they used the language that they did, it was very cut and dry, right? You read that as NASCAR has seen this, investigated it, knows for sure, all this yeah. other stuff, yeah. and people ran with it. And then when the story changed, even the slightest, that's where the confusion happened. And when there's confusion without answers, that brought a lot of bad stuff, unfortunately, directed at Bubba, who really had nothing to do with this. Well, let me just say, I appreciate your honesty. I appreciate Bubba Wallace. My kids will dress up as Bubba Wallace for Halloween. There are a bunch of new fans just because of the way NASCAR has been forward-facing and thinking about this. And as I said on CNN the other day, it's not just the drivers, it's not just Bubba, but it's people like you who are speaking up and speaking out and being on the right side of issues. Now, you're not quite as dope as Taylor Swift, but you're still my friend. So <laughs> I would appreciate that. And on behalf of the Bakari Sellers podcast, which is even very difficult to say uh, and very vain. I don't know what we're thinking about by naming it this, but thank you so much for uh, being a part of our debut episode, Alan Kavana. Where can people find you? Uh, please find me on Twitter at Alan Kavana. Watch NASCAR on Fox, the Fox family to do all that stuff. And uh, listen, we have a podcast of my own called Positive Regression. It's really good stuff. Well, positive regression is where we'll find out about how to race cars, and we will put that link into our uh, show bio. Kaya will take care of that. Thank you, brother. I love you. I love your family, and I'm, I'm happy to call you a friend, especially during these moments. Same to you. Congrats on all your success. All right, man. So that's another great show. Um, another one. I don't even know why I'm saying another. That is a great show. That's our debut show. I hope you all enjoyed it. Remember, today is a good day to call the uh, Kentucky uh, Attorney General and remind him to arrest the killers of Breonna Taylor. Uh, wear your mask and make sure that you register to vote and make sure everybody around you is registered to vote. My next show coming out on Thursday, we're going to have Tiffany Cross join us. She has a new book coming out. Me and Tiffany just going to sit back and talk about the news of the day and what's going on around us. I also want uh, you guys to do a few things for me. Not only subscribe, but I want you guys to actually make suggestions. Just hit me up on Twitter. Um, and make suggestions about guests you think we should have. I, I'm thinking about doing an entire show on The Watchmen on HBO. I think that'd be dope. 
Uh, I don't really care if some of y'all don't like that, but we're going to do it anyway and have fun. That's going to be your homework. Watch The Watchmen. And then I need some of y'all to tell me what the hell is K-pop? I have no idea what that is. So if some of y'all can uh, educate me on what K-pop is, uh, we're going to talk about that Thursday a little bit as well. So thank y'all for joining the Bakari Sellers podcast. This has been amazing. This is going to be an amazing ride.